Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Family Sanctuary, a show that inspires living the gospel message in word and deed within our families. And now, Family Sanctuary with host Peggy Hartshorn. Welcome to our program, The Family Sanctuary, focusing on life-giving relationships and the family. I'm your host, Peggy Hartshorn, Chairman of Heartbeat International, that advances life-affirming pregnancy help around the world. And today we have a show that is actually a beautiful testimony uh, of of love within a family, uh, love that uh, that that actually was most demonstrated after a tragedy in that family. Uh, that has led them to such a pro-life call in their entire family. And I just, it's one of the most powerful stories I know of how truly uh, life is nurtured and formed and valued and the dignity of life is reflected in the family and by the family. So I'm happy to introduce our guest today who's going to share this beautiful testimony, um, Peter Range. Welcome, Peter to the program. Peggy, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, thank you for being here in person. It's great to see your beautiful face and <laughs> uh, and the joy that's always radiating from your eyes and your smile as because of the love of the Lord that's within you and that, that came from the, the way God worked in your family. So I'm eager for our audience to hear your story. Uh, Peter, um, most recently in uh, January of 22, became the executive director of Ohio Right to Life. Um, and he served right before that for seven years as the director of the Office of Life and Justice of Catholic Charities in the Diocese of Toledo. That's what he's doing now. Uh, he also has his own radio program. I'm happy to have been one of his guests, uh, which his program is called Yes to Life. We could have called this program probably Yes to Life <laughs> as well, uh, although that's the name of his radio program, which is on several Catholic radio um, stations, including uh, St. Gabriel Catholic Radio here. You can hear his program uh, every third Saturday of the month on Saturday and Sunday. So um, he's also appeared um, on uh, other programs on EWTN, uh, Life on the Rock, Cresta in the Afternoon, Catholic Connection, and um, he's been published in The Federalist. So uh, he has a, quite a, a wonderful resume here. He has a master's of uh, theology from Notre Dame with a focus on biblical studies, um, undergraduate degree from John Carroll. He's worked in ministries serving immigrant families in Florida inner city youth in Cleveland, university students in Bowling Green, the homeless in Cleveland, Toledo. Wow, Peter, <laughs> the way you have reflected uh, your your pro-life story um, that was nurtured so beautifully in your family. What a beautiful resume of uh of, of a pro-life call and you're so young still <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to think what god is going to do with you and with your family because as i mentioned to peter before we got started here not only is his birth family a phenomenal pro-life family which i want him to share with you but uh, he's living that out in the next generation with his wife, Laura. Uh, you were married in May of 2015, and uh, you have your son, Ignatius Allen, who's in heaven, your daughter, Gianna Rose, your son, John Paul, your son, Joseph Peter, and your son, William Dominic. <laughs> so you're well on your way uh, with a beautiful pro-life family of your own. Just thinking of those great names, too. Wow. Uh, all the great saints you've got. <laughs> well, my kids right now, you know, they're six, four, two, and baby. Wow. Uh, so last night I was up at six, four, two, and pretty oh, much no. all night long. I mean, that's how it goes with a young family, but tremendous blessing. I want to change it for the world. So. Oh, they are a blessing. And there's so much 
work when they're little. But, uh, you know, of course, um, as they get older, it's less physical work, probably more <laughs> mental and spiritual at the, as, as they get older. But yeah. so you have all that to, to go ahead. But what a beautiful example from your own family. So, Peter, just start telling us, um, you know, how this wonderful pro-life uh, attitude that you have, the faith, the, the, the commitment to life, uh, how that was nurtured in your own family. It's just a phenomenal story. So just start telling us that if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> well, Peggy here in studio, I actually have, um, so this is the joystick, uh, from my father's wheelchair. Mm. And when I travel the state of Ohio, which I do often, I gave about three different uh, presentations this week. I always bring this with me. Uh, cause I always ask, uh, my father for his intercession, uh, please God that he's with the Lord in heaven. He died about seven years ago and uh, he was my best friend and I miss him every single day. He was going to be the best man in my wedding and he died about uh, three months before I got married to Laura. Um, so I miss him dearly. Uh, but his life uh, not only gave my life trajectory, but it's given so many lives around the state of Ohio and even around the country. He wrote a, wrote a book called uh, Cripple, the Story of an American Journey. Uh, but that story has given so many people just hope that no matter what cross comes our way, that if we embrace it, if we say yes to it, um, that cross can lead to resurrection. It can lead to new life. So my dad's story actually begins uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania, age 11. He loved playing baseball. So he's a part of a championship baseball team. And that's all he would love to do in the summertime there in Erie. And uh, three weeks before he was going to be vaccinated with the polio vaccine, he contracted the polio virus. So, so much in life is timing, you know, three weeks later and he would have been vaccinated. He would have been okay. Uh, contracted polio though. He was actually sent to Georgia to help recover. FDR had a recovery center down there for kids with polio. And so he's away from his family for a little bit. Uh, came back, though, to Pennsylvania. Uh, his family moved to Ohio. Um, and he spent many of his early years then, 11, 12, 13, uh, as he was entering kind of puberty, actually just on his back in a, in a hospital room as they were trying to help him rehabilitate any little muscle memory he could get. So he did. He regained about uh, half of the use of his right arm. His left arm, his two legs remained completely paralyzed. Now, my tough Irish grandmother, Mary Agnes Range, God rest her soul. Um, <laughs> she was tough. I mean, mm -hmm. and she told Jerry, she's like, Jerry, you're going to learn to take care of yourself. Um, so he did. It would take him literally 40 minutes in the morning just to put his pants on by himself. Mm. Now, I can't imagine. I mean, every time you know, my, my kid falls down or whatever it may be, I, I quickly want to run and help them, right? Right. So for my grandma to sit and just kind of watch my dad and, and say, no, you, you got to do this by yourself because I'm not always going to be here. Um, so he did. He went to Dover St. Joseph High School there in Dover, Ohio. Uh, and then he ended up going to the University of Illinois. Uh, kind of and this was just the only part of his body that he actually had control of was part of his arm. That's right. Yeah. Part of his right arm. So he was able to, you know, could pick he up. Speak? A, yep. He could he speak. Could speak. Okay. He was uh, <clears throat> uh, smart and sharp as a tack. I mean, he had very uh, smartest man I've ever known. Um, and he actually was accepted to um, John Carroll University. But John Carroll found out that, uh, and this is before the Americans with Disabilities Act, they found out that he was in a, in a wheelchair after he had been accepted. Um, and they actually sent him a letter and said, sorry, you actually can't come to school here. Mm. So mm. the University of Illinois was the only school in the country actually accepting handicapped kids at the time. Wow. So he goes off to the University of Illinois. Uh, he works, he gets uh, all the way through undergrad and then he stays for his master's in journalism. Uh, and then he took a job in Cleveland, Ohio for the Plain Dealer. So he was working as a copy editor there. 
Um, one night he's going to ride home from a buddy. They're on the shoreway there in Lakewood, got into a car accident, end up smack dab in between two hospitals, St. John's, which was Catholic and St. Luke's, which was Protestant. Now my, my father was nominally Catholic at the time. And, uh, the cops were literally standing above him saying, you know, well, where do you want to go? And my dad said, well, I, I guess the Catholic hospital. So he goes to St. John's and the nurse assigned to his room was a woman by the name of Mary Jean Cook. She was uh, one child of 13 of the Cook family there in, in West Cleveland. Uh, but they, they met Mary Jean and my dad and they fell in love and they were married a year later. <laughs> and that's your mother. And that's my mom. I mean, it's just, you know, so when I go out and I talk to young people, I'm like, yeah, just go get in a car accident. That'll help you find your future. Someone <laughs> no, don't do that. But um, it's amazing how, how God, God orchestrates, right. you know, bringing two people together. I mean, it really was in some senses a, a miracle uh, out of a tragedy, out of the tragedy of a car accident. He broke his hip and everything. And obviously he can walk, but that's still very painful. Mm-hmm. Um you know, in, my dad meets mom. In those days, because obviously this is kind of the pre-electronic stage, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned the joystick that you brought with you that I see here on our table that he used from his wheelchair. How was he able to to operate uh, in, in, during college and, and getting his journalism degree? I mean, tell us about how complex that would have been for him at that point in time. Yeah, so the the way that the wheelchair was set up is that with that one right arm, as he kind of wheeled the right wheel, it was connected to the left, so that would enable him to kind of wheel things around. Mm-hmm. When he went to high school, uh, you know, there was no elevators in the high school, mm-hmm. so four boys uh, every morning would come down, pick him up, and carry him up two flights of stairs to his classroom. Wow. Um, so he how, literally... How did he do his dis- assignments? Was everything oral? Did he speak into... Did that was there technology that actually could capture his voice, or how did that work? Yeah, so thankfully he was able to with with that arm he was able to kind of uh, write, and he was pretty mm, okay. became pretty good, pretty legible uh, writing. Uh, but when it came around to actually uh, writing his autobiography, it was before that kind of talk to text system that we mm-hmm. have now. So he actually every night I remember this when I was a young kid growing up, I would set him up before I would go to bed, um, and I would put three books as well as a keyboard down right in front of him. And I would give him a kind of plastic ball that at the end of it had a pencil. And he literally pecked one, you know, letter at a time, time. his entire autobiography. I mean, just, (laughs) you know, incredible. But that was the, that was the true grit that my dad had. I mean, he just, he set his mind to something and he was going to accomplish it. And so, I mean, to get a master's from, you know, a great university, University of Illinois, and then, you know, meeting my mom. Uh, and then they, you know, ended up having six kids, including myself. So <laughs> they were being pro-life themselves and actually had the first four. They took a five-year break, thought they the, they were done. Uh, but I like to say I was the best accident that ever came to them because <laughs> I was, that was a surprise for sure. Uh, and then my little brother came, Patrick, uh, two years after I did. And, you know, life was great. So he had taken a job down at uh, Dayton, Ohio at the Dayton Daily News working again as a copy editor and everything. And uh, about, it was 1989. Uh, Dad was suffering, though, from some severe anxiety, depression. He actually, Peggy, had a bottle of pills, and he wanted to um, just take them all one night. You know, mm. when I get stressed, I I can go on a run or I can lift weights or whatever it may be. And uh, But, you know, my dad was just kind of stuck in the body. Sure. So you got six kids. I mean, that's stressful, right? And trying to provide for them and everything. And he would work the night shift as well. So just a lot of- It would be almost unbelievable if he wouldn't have suffered some discouragement and depression along the way. Yeah, Sure, I'm sure that was Satan attacking because of his tremendous faith. Without a doubt, without a doubt. So, um, but my mom thankfully, you know, caught him and said, Jerry, you know, I've 
I've got six kids. I can't do this myself. You got to go get help. And so he went to see a psychiatrist who was really wonderful and helping him through a lot of things that he'd been struggling since, you know, he was on his back as a teenager, you know, working his way through polio and everything. And, um, but she, he was prescribed a medication to help fall asleep at night. Cause that was one of his issues. He couldn't fall asleep because of the schedules he was on as a copy mm-hmm. editor. The medication was FDA approved and everything, but it was being made illegally by the company. They didn't know that. So it killed 50 people in the United States, mm. injured thousands more, and in 1989, re-paralyzed dad from the neck down. So he was on mm. he was on his deathbed. The doctors had no idea what was going on. They thought it was post-polio syndrome, possibly. They had him on a ventilator. They asked my mom, do you, do you want to take him off? Like, we don't think he's going to recover. Uh, my mom said, no, no. Like, you know, we, we've talked about this. He, he's going to be okay. I, you know, we believe in the healing power of our Lord and... So uh, one doctor came in and just miraculously said, you know, well, let, let me see those medications again. He kind of connected some of those dots, knew that it was this particular medication that was causing these issues around the country, you know. And so uh, they started to kind of reverse that process and dad was taking off the ventilator and brought back home. But then it's like a whole new reality because he's facing a world now again where before he could pick up a cup of coffee, before he could dress himself, it would take him a long time, but he was able to do it himself. And he was able to to peck out the letters for his, uh, or it, whatever he was doing and writing in those days, right. he could still do that. Yeah, the special keyboard they had. Before yeah. this drug reaction. That's right, yeah. that's right, yeah. I mean, he could, he could go, um, you know, someone would have to wheel him, but he could also use the restroom by himself mm-hmm. as well. And that's, mm-hmm. I mean, those little things we don't think about, but that's, you know, that's a gift to be able to, to take care of yourself. Sure. Uh, but in 1989, you know, dad becomes completely paralyzed from the neck down. I was eight years old. Uh, he wasn't able to recover in time. I mean, he had some disability time with the the newspaper there, the Dayton Daily News. But I mean, he just wasn't able to recover to the point where he could go back to work. So they fired him. Mm. Um, so we're sitting there in 1989 in Dayton, Ohio, and we had to move. Uh, we moved to uh, New Philadelphia because my uncle owned some houses there and he was going to allow us to live rent free for some time. And I remember every week we'd have people deliver groceries to our door as we kind of figured out, you know, what's next and everything. So, wow. um, so your mother's faith in here is, is an amazing story too. Obviously for her even saying to the doctors, don't take him off the respirator. Yeah, you know, we yeah. believe that, that he's going to be okay, yeah. that there, there's going to be a healing. Yeah. Uh, and then when, uh, obviously they did at least get him breathing again, the, the uh they were able to reverse the effects of that drug to a certain extent yeah but then to accept the reality okay no job Mm -hmm. uh, have to move Mm -hmm. uh, don't know how we're going to manage but your mother must have been the stalwart there with her faith huh my mother's faith is incredible yeah she is a she is a life force and you know Mm -hmm. you mentioned some of the work uh, that i've done and stuff It, it pales in comparison to the way that my mother has allowed the holy spirit to work in her life and everyone who comes to encounter my mom encounters um, a glimpse of Jesus. And yeah. so I'm just so very blessed by her faithfulness and her commitment uh, to loving my father through all his difficulties. Let me reintroduce you, Peter, because we're just about halfway through our program. And I know sometimes people are coming and going. I don't want them to miss knowing who you are speaking today with this beautiful story. Uh, speaking to us is Peter Range, who right now uh, is the relatively new executive director of Ohio Right to Life, uh, previously the director of the Office of Life and Justice for Catholic Charities in the Diocese of Toledo, and has a phenomenal history of service, what what we were just alluding to, uh, to immigrant families, to 
inner city youth to university students, homeless and so forth. The the way he has spent his professional life uh, since receiving his master's in theology um, from University of Notre Dame is just uh, a tremendous testimony to a pro-life call. He has uh, a beautiful, beautiful family. Did you say what? They were six, four, two, baby, what? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Four kids, six, four, two, and baby. <laughs> and and just married to his wife, Laura, in May of 2015. So he, he, he is taking the history of his birth family, which is just a phenomenal pro-life story. He's living that out in the next generation with his own family. Just a beautiful testimony. So, uh, so Peter's been talking about his father who um, as a result of polio, was almost entirely paralyzed, except for his left arm, did you say? His part, right arm. Part yeah. of his right arm. Mm-hmm. So he was able to uh, get, a, get a, did you say a master's degree in journalism? That's correct, yeah. Uh, uh, was married, worked um, uh, on a couple of different newspapers, um, was a journalist, uh, wrote his own biography, but but then tragically, uh, it, even though he, he was facing all of these uh, challenges, uh, he had a drug reaction to a drug that was prescribed to help him sleep, uh, became totally paralyzed from the neck down, could no longer use his arm, uh, could, could no longer dress himself, uh, do normal activities of daily life like he had before. And so here's, a, here's the next stage of the challenge uh, that your family rose to. So go ahead and continue the story now, Peter. You had to move to another community. Yeah, that's right. So we moved to New Philadelphia, Ohio, and you know we enrolled in the Catholic schools there and everything. And it was just, it was so amazing that community kind of coming around and supporting our family from delivering of groceries every week. But, you know, there would be times where it was time to kind of pay the Catholic school tuition and it would just show up and, and we had no idea kind of where it came from, if you will. Um, so dad tried to get back to normal. He took a little job at the local paper writing kind of a local column and actually got picked up uh, by a paper called The Bargain Hunter, uh, which went to a, a couple different counties as well. And uh, the Amish fell in love with my father. And I remember <laughs> after church, um, people would line up to actually just shake my dad's hand, you know? Wow. And so it was amazing to see, you know, as my dad kind of would relay the stories of his life and encourage others to continue to say yes to life, um, how that was inspiring people. Uh And so I was inspired to see that too. And when I was a little kid, my dad would take me around to his public presentations and I got to be his page turner. Um, (laughs) So to be up there on stage and to watch his story really transform the hearts and minds of others. I think it was Peter von Kolvenbach said, when the heart is touched by direct experience, the mind may be challenged to change. And so when I go out today and give talks as well, I mean, that's what I try to do. I just try to tell stories and we mm-hmm. need to recapture mm-hmm. that, I think, in the pro-life movement. Mm-hmm. And that's what my dad was great at, was just telling stories, including his own. And that witness uh, gave birth to a lot of people choosing life. That is wonderful. So he could no longer uh, use his hands at all to write. But That's right. th- is this when could he could he uh, then the technology had caught up with the fact that he could he could speak into a machine that could transcribe? Is that is that how he could communicate in writing at that point? Yeah, that was a, a little bit later. Uh, he would do the same way he, that he wrote his autobiography. He would also um, do his column. So we would mm-hmm. set him up kind of with that kind of uh, keyboard and mm-hmm. he would kind of peck, you know, a letter at a time and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. it was just, it was amazing to witness that. And he was, uh, but I mean, he wrote very long columns uh, for the paper and uh, just a blessing. And it, it was tough for me too, uh, but also awakening to the value and dignity of life and also humbling. Uh, when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school, and if my mom was sick uh, with the flu or something and she couldn't just get out of bed, uh, I'd be called home from school 
And, you know, I'd have to get dad on off the bedpan, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to wipe his backside, to blow his nose later in life when he had a tracheotomy again, uh, to have to suction the mucus out of his lungs. I mean, these are all intimate things, right? But when you do that, you you, kind of recognize, you know, this life here, my father, like he's valuable, not for anything that he does, but he's just valuable for who he is. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't easy to do that, but you do it because they're family. And you love them. Mm-hmm. And I think so much uh, of the problems that we see in our society today is because the family is breaking down. Um, and until we rebuild the family, I don't think we'll see a society that's uh, really representing what it's meant to be through the design of our Lord. Mm-hmm. How, I, I'm sure. Now, tell us your father has passed away at this point, of course. We trust he's in heaven with the Lord. We, we pray absolutely inter- every day. Inter- interceding for you and your work now. How how has this affected your, I, I know coming in as, as a relatively new executive director of Ohio Right to Life, uh, I think as you were sharing a few minutes ago, I think you seem to be alluding to how you think we need to uh, tell these kinds of stories um, to help impact you say that if the heart is impacted then the mind can be changed um how do you see that directly impacting how you're going to be leading ohio right to life yeah thank you so i think on a couple different levels uh was it pope benedict who said something of the nature that you know to evangelize means to teach the art of living um i also like to say that it's it's to teach the art of loving as well Mm -hmm. so In the pro-life movement, um, one of the things I try to emphasize just in my own personal life is every individual that I encounter, uh, that they're made in God's image and likeness, and they possess a nature which surpasses understanding. So if I can make people feel that way when I encounter them, um, that's a, that's a win for the pro-life movement, if you will. And that's that's everybody. That's You make them feel that way about themselves? Yes, about mm-hmm, themselves, mm-hmm. absolutely. And that's, that's the individuals that I work with on a daily basis, but that's also the individuals who have a different worldview than I do. Um, you know, I was able in the Diocese of Toledo running that ministry to break bread and take the abortion doctor actually out to lunch. And we also had an opportunity to pray together. And as we were praying together uh, in this moment, uh, the gentleman's name was Tom. Um, I felt like the Holy Spirit really convict me, Peggy, and say that this is my son. I want him home. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the Holy Spirit can say that and about an abortion doctor, how much does he desire each one of us home and how much in each of our family interactions does he want us to love as he has loved us? Mm-hmm. You know, we have to forgive the inexcusable in others because the inexcusable in us has been forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, so first and foremost, I think, you know, my parents' story of just complete and utter love because going through all of this, you know, dad wasn't always that the happiest of people. I mean, sure. he could be quite grumpy some days. Yeah, he was human. But from my mother, <laughs> it was just, I learned this, this call to say yes to the covenantal commitments we've made in life. And she loved him just every single day with everything that she had, despite, you know, any neg- negativity she sometimes received. Mm-hmm. And that was incredible for me to witness because now in my own marriage, I've only been married for seven years, but you know, and marriage can be challenging, sure. right? But no matter what we receive, uh, splinters from the cross, we're still called to love no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for my father too, I think uh, last thing I'll say on this point is um, just encouraging others uh, to embrace life and to say yes to life. Mm-hmm. You know, despite the fact my dad couldn't stand up and play catch with one of his four boys or stand up and dance with his wife of 40 years, 
he still embraced life. He embraced the challenge. He embraced the challenge of writing an autobiography, he embraced the challenge of getting out there before people and, and telling his story and telling the story in intimate detail so people understood, yes, I've experienced incredibly challenging things, but yes, I'm still here because I think life is valuable and life is worth saying yes to. Mm -hmm. um, if we can encourage others in the church and in our world today that no matter what you go through, God can redeem all things. In fact, God is an expert at that. <laughs> I mean, God took the cross right. and he turned it into the resurrection. So whatever we're going through, we can hope and believe and know that, as it says in Romans eight twenty eight, that God works all, all for the good for those who love him. Mm -hmm. um, so let's embrace the cross because through the cross is a resurrection. Yeah. I think what, what you're saying, uh, another way of saying it in shorthand is there's always hope. Amen. Yeah. And, you know, with our work with pregnancy help, of course, that's the message that we, that we're trying to convey to the women that we see mm. all over the world in pregnancy help centers. Yes, you have a, you have a burden here. Yes. Uh, you need tremendous amount of support. Uh, yes, you may feel lonely and, and unsupported and, and, and challenged in such a way that you don't know how you can do it. Mm. But there is hope. You know, right. there are loving people who are willing to walk along with you as your mother and family were with your dad mm -hmm. and uh, God's grace, you know, can prevail. So, uh, does prevail. Mm. Amen. <laughs> so that story, that's what we're trying to convey to all those, you know, who are doubting either is my own life valuable? Is my child's life valuable? Uh, is, can I get through this struggle? You know, um, and we, we, we have to be willing today to embrace pain and suffering. Mm -hmm, and I think St. John mm -hmm. Paul II was a great witness of that. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said something of the nature that we're but blocks of stone until God uses pain as his chisel mm -hmm. to sculpt his perfect masterpieces. Yeah. Like if you think back on your life, you look at it like, well, how did I really become who I am? How was I formed? It's often those painful, it's those dark nights of the soul that, that the Lord uses to make us uh, steadfast in the faith and steadfast in understanding right. and appreciate his love. And so it really is the cross. And that's what we're called to embrace in family life and then through family life uh, to a society who desperately needs to see that there is hope uh, and that if we embrace Christ, it doesn't matter what we go through. Mm -hmm. uh, he's preparing a heavenly home homeland for us, which is out of this world. I think in one of the powerful parts of your story is that you all experienced it through each other, through another person. So mm -hmm. as we say, the most important alternative to abortion is a person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we have to be Christ to the people around us. That's what our call is. And that's what your story shows so beautifully, how you were all Christ and are Christ to each other. Yeah. What an example. Thank you so much, Peter. Our guest has been Peter Range, uh, who's given us a phenomenal testimony of uh, of actually how tragedy uh, brought a pro-life call throughout his family and even into his family today. So you have been listening to uh, The Family Sanctuary on St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, and I'm your host, Peggy Hartshorn. Uh, archives of our program are at stgabrielradio.com. You can listen to this beautiful program again <laughs> and several of our others, please, on uh, on stgabrielradio.com. Our program is broadcast at 4 o'clock every Saturday and 2 o'clock on Sundays. So please join us again to strengthen our families and make them sanctuaries of life as God intends. Family Sanctuary is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Family Sanctuary with Peggy Hartshorn are available at stgabrielradio.com.
Then.